Actually, I'd like to ask you to turn back to Joshua chapter 23, which is only just a few pages, because that's the first passage that we will look at together, Joshua chapter 23. A sad turn of events is especially discouraging when it comes immediately on the heels of high hopes. If you're sort of expecting something to go wrong, and it does, you're not so shocked and dismayed. You may say something like, you know, somehow I didn't have a good feeling about this from the get-go. I just had a gut premonition that this wasn't going to end well. But when we have every reason to expect a great outcome and it doesn't happen and things go horribly wrong and our hopes are dashed, then we are really devastated. Doesn't this happen to us from time to time? I remember um, an occasion where my heart was made very, very, very sad for the sake of my son. And you who are parents know how your deepest sorrows sometimes come when you see your children hurt. Um, This is not actually a sad story, but it felt sad to him. Some of you may know that Jonathan's a big Michigan fan. And uh, that's kind of hard to figure out, being uh, living in Kentucky, actually born in Evansville. But there's a story behind how that happened. And um, it doesn't mean that he hates Kentucky, by the way. It just means he hates Ohio State. (laughs) But uh, I'm sorry, the Huffers and others. um, Keep in mind that he's not the only pastor who is a Michigan fan. Pastor Sam is a Michigan fan. Pastor Ted is a Michigan fan. But we love other football teams. So we were down in San Antonio, Michigan qualified for the Alamo Bowl. They were favored to win Friday night before the game on Saturday was festive. We were enjoying the river walk and nice restaurant and just thousands of people there anticipating the big game. Jonathan was feeling really happy, looking forward to the crushing defeat. They were going to deal to Nebraska. And I have a son-in-law who's a huge Nebraska fan. Imagine the problems that's going to cause now that they're a part of the Big Ten. But it looked really favorable for Michigan. But things didn't go well. And toward the end of the game, in, in, in a bizarre kind of freakish way, everything came unraveled within the last few seconds. And Michigan lost the game that they were expected to win. And I can't tell you the devastation that caused to my then younger less mature son. (laughs) Um, He didn't behave himself unseemly, but I'm telling you, his heart was broken. We traveled all the way to San Antonio to see Michigan win. We had every expectation that they would win. He was deeply devastated, and I could not console him. Uh, He roamed around. He went to the hotel where the Michigan team was staying. He talked to a few of the players. He came back to the motel late. 
The next day, I tried to comfort him from the standpoint of God's decrees. <laughs> it didn't work. He said, Dad, I know all that theology, but right now that doesn't touch my heart. I believe that, but it's not touching my heart. He was so devastated. What I'm trying to say to you is he had high expectations. We had high expectations. They weren't realized. Things went horribly south. The team lost. And, and you're more greatly devastated when your expectations are high. That's what I'm trying to say to you. We've had other experiences, haven't we? We know people who've gone to the hospital to have routine surgery, and the doctor gave every positive prospect. He said, I think this will be very routine. She should be out in 45 minutes. And he comes into the waiting room and says, To my shock, I have discovered that your loved one has cancer, and it's spread so far that it is inoperable, and it is terminal. And you just cannot contemplate the depths to which your emotions have fallen, having been so previously high. I was thinking about the parents of Krista McAuliffe, who were so proud that their daughter would go up in the space shuttle, Challenger, and to be so honored to be the first school teacher, social studies teacher from Concord High School in New Hampshire. And, and you can still perhaps remember seeing her parents watching the shuttle go up and, and advance and having every hope that it was going to be a successful mission. And then suddenly there's a plume of smoke and the word begins to get out that something terrible and devastating has happened. The shuttle has exploded and she and her Six crewmates plunged into the Atlantic Ocean and were killed. It was so devastating to go in an instant from high hopes to horror. Well, that is exactly, exactly what happened when we come to the beginning of the book of Judges. It's the kind of high hopes followed by disaster experience that I've just illustrated. Joshua, the great military general and man of faith, had successfully led the people of Israel into the promised land of Canaan. His conquest had been largely successful. The land had been taken, and now it only needed to be possessed. The remnant of the Canaanites only needed to be completely exterminated and eradicated. And just before Joshua dies, he summons Israel and he gives them his farewell charge, which amounts to finish the job and be faithful to God. Let's end well. And we find that in this 23rd chapter. I'm only going to take a moment to read for you two verses. It's actually found in verses 1 through 11. But would you just notice verses 5 and 6, what he says to the people of Israel shortly before he dies. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight. And you shall possess the, their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be strong and keep to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. Turning aside from it, neither to the right hand nor to the left. And he goes on to give his exhortation. And so when we come into the book of Judges, we have high hopes. Our expectations are optimistic. Our anticipations are positive. 
But something horrible happens. It all goes south. It all falls apart. Instead of landing well, the plane of complete victory crashes and burns. And as we watch what had been high hopes for us, namely a godly covenant-keeping nation, displaying the glory of God, happily obeying His law, prospering in the land, flowing with milk and honey, as we see these high hopes that we had for that nation, go up in flames and smoke. And instead the nation apostatizing, assimilating the godless culture that had surrounded it, and actually coming into bondage to the very nations they had just conquered. And as we see that unfolding in the book of Judges, we are confused. We are dismayed. We are consternated. We are like deer staring in headlights. And we are paralyzed with amazement and we lower our heads in shock. And we say, what in the world happened? Well, the purpose of my sermon this morning is to answer that question. I'm going to answer the what. What happened? And then at the end of the message, I want to point out to us some vital lessons by answering the question, why? Why did that happen? Lessons for Heritage Baptist Church. And one of the reasons I want to help you understand this book of Judges is the one that our brother John hinted at just a moment ago. God willing, next Lord's Day, we will actually begin looking at one of the judges during this period of the judges, which lasted 350 years, as John said, between the death of Joshua and the rise of Samuel. We're going to be looking at the life of Samson and what we at Heritage Baptist Church can learn from him. Now, just a word about the title of the book. It, it may be a bit confusing. When you think of judges, don't you tend to think of men wearing black robes and sitting in judgment on civil matters and behavior and law and ethics and so forth? That's not what you should think of. The judges of this book are really military leaders and political leaders. We don't know who wrote the book. Perhaps it was Samuel. We only know this, that it was written after the death of Samson, but somehow before the rise of, of David. And yet, already there had been a king. We know that because the key verse in this book is actually the very last verse of the, of the book. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but if you like, you may. But I'll just quickly read it for you. In chapter 21, the very last verse of this book, we read, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In those days there was no king. The implication is there is a king now. Probably it was King Saul. And in many respects, that is a key verse to understanding the entire book. Because this period of history lasting some 350 years, among other things, was designed to show the people of Israel that they desperately needed a king, and was designed to show the people of Heritage Baptist Church that we desperately need a king. And when they finally got the very kings that God had promised them throughout the rest of their history, they learned that they needed a different and better kind of king. And so the book of Judges 
teaches us much about our own sinful human nature and our desperate need of God and his grace. Now, John mentioned for our benefit, and I'm thankful that he did, because in doing so, he saved me some time, that there was a cycle going on. Did you see the cycle just in his reading? If you didn't, please look for it later, perhaps not during the sermon. I'll just tell you once again what the cycle was. These people... Because they didn't know the Lord, they were another generation, they were not the generation of Joshua, they did not know the Lord. There was no saving relationship between them and the God of Israel. They were unconverted. And because of that, they didn't love his law, and so they disobeyed, they rebelled. Let's just work with the R's. There was rebellion. And the rebellion was followed by retribution on the part of God. God isn't going to allow rebellion to go unchecked. He punishes sin. And the retribution produced a kind of temporary repentance, um, a sorrow for sin. Like, we really have messed up here, haven't we? Don't you hate this oppression that is being brought upon us by these Canaanites? And in their... Superficial repentance, say, oh, God, we're so sorry. Please forgive us. Please come and help us. And the heart of God is moved, even by a people who are not genuine in their repentance, to be merciful. We just read this. His heart was deeply moved with pity. It says, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. And as I was sitting on the front pew hearing this again for probably the 15th time as I've been studying this text, I said to myself, would you be moved to pity at the groans of people who just keep doing the same thing over and over and over? Rebellion, retribution, repentance, and the fourth thing is rest, because God would raise up a deliverer. And they would have rest as long as that judge lived, that political military leader. And then as soon as he died the people would once again rebel against God and he would have to deal with them in retribution and they would come to a superficial repentance and he would give them a judge and they would have rest. And round and round and round the cycle goes. That's what the book of Judges is about. That's what happens. But what I want you to see is that this cycle especially the sin followed by bondage, was something that God actually warned his people about centuries before. And here I'm going to ask you to go on a brief excursion with me. This is going to be a little bit of a historical theology excursion. And if there's any part of the sermon that probably is a little more tedious than the others, it's going to be this part right here. So I'm going to ask you to gird up your minds and just be disciplined and say, okay, I'm going to get this. I'm going to follow. I'm going to track. Because I'm going to show you this very quickly, and I want to get as quickly as I can through this so that we can come to the lessons that we learned so that I can answer the, the second question is the why. What happened? I want to show you that what happened, which I just told you about in terms of this vicious cycle, this depressing, discouraging cycle, happened as something that God told them that was going to happen. And I would ask you to go with me for just a moment back to Leviticus 26. In Leviticus 26, we have God telling his people, look, I'm entering into a covenant relationship with you, and it works like this. If you obey me, I'll bless you. If you disobey me, I'm going to curse you. 
And since you'll wonder what the blessing will look like, I'll tell you. And since you wonder what the curse might look like, I'll tell you. And when we come to verse 14, he's talking about the punishment, the bondage, the retribution that will come for disobedience. And he says, but if you will not listen, and by the way, if is an important word because it shows that this covenant was conditional. The new covenant is not conditional. We sit here this morning. I'm just throwing out a hint toward the end of the message. I hope I'll thrill your hearts with this. We sit here this morning. If we are true believers as members of the new covenant, it is not conditional. God has secured all of its terms, but the old covenant was conditional. And so the the preposition, if, if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and If you're now, this is really important. This shows what causes our disobedience. Here's the root of the problem in Israel. Here's the root of the problem in those of you who are not converted this morning and who are not true disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules, there's the problem. It's a soul problem. It's a heart problem. We don't like these rules because we don't like this God. We don't like that authority. We want liberty. My soul abhors these rules and And God says to his people, if you spurn my statutes because your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then and then he goes on to tell the kinds of things he's going to do. But look at verse 17. I will set my face against you and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you and you shall flee when none pursues And notice one more thing that will sadly become a reality in verse 30. God says, And I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols. And my soul, I'm not talking about your soul, Israel. I've already said that your soul, which abhors my laws, leads you to disobedience. I want you to know something about my soul. My soul will abhor you. This is a prophecy. This is a warning from God. This is what's going to happen if, 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 if. And then the warning becomes an actual prophecy. If you'll come over to Deuteronomy very quickly, please. Chapter 31. And this is toward the end of the life of Moses. Moses is about to die. Joshua is going to take over his leadership. Notice verses 16, 17, and 18 of Deuteronomy 31. Now God is talking to Moses, and then Moses takes this prophecy and gives it to the people. Now, tell me as you listen to this, is this a warning or is this a prophecy? Leviticus 26 was a warning. If you do this, then that. See if this sounds like a warning or a prophecy. Here we go. Verse 18. And the Lord, verse 16. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then, and this should make us cry. This should have, this probably made Moses weep, at least inwardly. Then Moses, sorry to tell you this. After you die, this people will rise and whore after foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me 
and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day and I will forsake them and hide my face from them and they will be devoured and many evils and troubles will come upon them so that they will say in that day, have not all these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? Yeah, that's right. Why do he leave you? That's the question. And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done because they have turned to other gods. So God prophesies what's going to happen. And then, and then he does something very interesting. He says in verse 19, Moses, I've got a song I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you a song. And I want you to give it to the people, and I want you to teach the people, and I want them to sing it. Okay? See that in verse 19? Now, therefore, write this song. And the song is found in chapter 32, verses 1 through 43. I'm not going to read the song. But I am going to point out to you about five verses. Imagine you're an Israelite now, and you've got to sing this. You have to sing this song because God gave it to you so that your conscience would be tender and, and continually sensitive before God and convicted if it need be. Look at verse 5. This is part of what you have to sing. They, meaning the Israelites, have dealt corruptly with him, God. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. You have to sing that about yourself. Look at verse 6. Do you thus reply to the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you and made you and established you? Go all the way to verse 16. They stirred him. Here you are singing about yourself. And you know really they means we and it means me. I stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations. I provoked him to anger look at verses 19 and 20 the lord and you're still singing you're singing this about yourself the lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters and he said i will hide my face from them i will see what their end will be for they will they are a perverse generation of children in whom is no faithfulness and God knew why this was all going to happen. If you just go back for a second to chapter, uh, chapter 31 and notice verse 21, he's still talking to Moses. And he says, Moses, when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. And now here comes some sad words. For I know, I know what they are inclined to do even today before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give. I know their inclinations, brothers and sisters and friends and you unconverted and children. God knows our inclinations because he knows our spiritual state. He knows the state of your soul. He knows whether or not you abhor his rules. He knows whether or not you are in love with yourself or him. And so God has to tell Moses, sadly, this is why I'm giving you the song and this is why they must sing it. And so Moses prophesies about it as well. And he says in verse 29 of chapter 31, look at verse 29, for I know that after my death, 
You will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded. And in the days to come, evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. And, and the, the, probably the most frightening word is, is no. I know. Wouldn't it be great if Moses could say, here's what I'm worried about. I think there's a good possibility this will happen. This might happen. It's likely to happen. I'm not sure it's going to happen. I hope it doesn't. No. I know what you're going to do when I die because God has told me what you're going to do when I die because God knows the inclination of your heart. And so in the passage that I turned you to earlier in Joshua 23, Joshua himself warns the people just as Moses did based on what he knew they were going to do. And it's interesting that in chapter, this is the last thing I want to show you about this. If you will just bear with me one more time. In chapter 24, I want you to notice verse 14. Really up uh, earlier, they said, oh, no, we're not going to do that. We will. uh, If you notice verse 16, then the people said, oh, far be it from us. We that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods for it is the Lord, our God, who brought us in our father. And so, oh, no, 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 no. Joshua, we're not going to do that. Why do you think such ill of us? We would never do that. We're not going to abandon our God and be unfaithful to him. And look what Joshua says to them in verse 19. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. What's that about? I think what that's about is this. Joshua says, oh, you poor, poor, self-deceived, naive Israelites. You talk so confidently. You talk as if you had a good heart. You talked as if you really loved God. You talked as if you cherished his rules. You don't. You don't know your own heart. You don't know your spiritual state. You, you Israelites, can't obey God. You don't have it in your soul to obey God. That's the truth. That's what he told them. So here they are in all this naivete and self-confidence, utterly deceived. And Joshua has to tell them the truth. What was their problem? They didn't know the Lord. We've already read that. Because they lacked a saving faith, they disobeyed God and they broke his covenant. And they entered repeatedly into bondage. And they experienced a kind of coerced, phony, superficial repentance. And God graciously responded to their superficial repentance and gave them a reprieve, a brief rest. And then, like a dog that returns to its vomit, as soon as the judge dies, they go right back to their disobedience. And they come right back into their bondage. And they go right back to their pleading with God, round and round and round. Now, I come to part two of my sermon. That's what? That's what happened. Isn't it horrible? Isn't it sad? Ah, but wait a minute. That's, that's the life of some of you. That's the life of some of you. That's the life of some of us. You're not just looking into the Bible. You're looking into a mirror. 
And it should fill your soul with horror and with sadness and with fear, a holy fear. Because if God doesn't break that cycle in your life, you will perish just like they perished. And so I come to the second question. Why did that happen? And I've hinted at it. I've already just mentioned they didn't know the Lord. And because they didn't know the Lord, they didn't have true faith. And because they didn't have true faith, they lived in disobedience. But I want to look at this even more carefully. And so it's lesson time. It's lesson time. And I have three lessons. So I hurried to get to that place so that we can give our thoughts to this before the sermon is over. Number one, in answering the question, how do you explain this? Here's my first observation. Listen carefully. Degenerate behavior is rooted in unregenerate hearts. Degenerate behavior. I don't know if you noticed this, but let me draw it to your attention. In chapter 2, and John read this for us, in verse 19, chapter 2, 19, it says, But whenever the judge died, they turned back, uh-oh, look at this, and were more corrupt. More corrupt. What? More? Yes, more corrupt than their fathers. This isn't just staying the, the same, at the same level of wickedness. This is going down. This is spiraling downward. This is degradation. And I'm suggesting to you as one of the lessons that we think of it this way, degenerate behavior, behavior that goes down, 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 is rooted in unregenerate hearts. And that's what Jesus taught us. He taught us that our problem is fundamentally a heart problem. It isn't an outward problem first. It's only an outward problem secondly. It is first a heart problem. Out of the heart, said our Savior, proceeds all evil. The mouth just happens to be one of the ways that the evil heart manifests itself. And so, because Israel's problem was a heart problem, and because our problem is fundamentally a heart problem, God's solution is fundamentally a heart solution. That's number one. That's observation number one. Degenerate behavior is rooted in unregenerate hearts. Number two, we, like Israel, need a deliverer. Notice, I'm starting with we. Now, we're not not talking about Israel First, I'm talking about us first. We, we like Israel need a deliverer, a rescuer, a savior. By the way, the book of Judges perhaps would be better entitled. The title's not inspired. A better title might be the book of saviors. Small s to be sure. But God raised up a savior for them. And then he, then they would sin and he raised up another savior and then they would Enjoy peace for a while, and when that Savior died, they would fall into sin, and he raised up another Savior, and another Savior, and another Savior. And all of those Saviors, listen to me, were types of Christ. Some better than others, none of them perfect. And I'm saying to us, 
that we need a deliverer, a judge, if you will, a king-like leader, a rescuer. But I'd like to focus on the word king because kings were on their way. When this period comes to an end, Samuel is raised up to give spiritual leader. He's actually the last judge. And Samuel is privileged to anoint the first king. And he gives Israel the, God does, the king they deserve uh, because their motives were poor. And so he, he gives them King Saul. And then he says, now are you ready for my kind of king? And he gives them King David, who becomes a type of Christ, not a perfect type of Christ, because there is no perfect type of anything in the three offices of the Old Testament. But I want to focus on the word king because we need a king deliverer, listen to me, who can actually give us, his subjects, new hearts. And thereby secure our loving obedience and our perseverance. Are you with me? What could these 12 judges do? Could they change the hearts of the Israelites? Some of them probably wished they could have. Why did the nation keep going into this cycle? I've already answered it. Because they didn't know the Lord, they did not have new hearts. And so in a sense, the whole history of the judges, that whole period was designed by God himself to say to that generation and to this generation and to the whole world, you need a king. That's why all of the offices were created. God didn't sit around and think, I wonder what would be helpful to them right now. I know, I'll give them a a prophet. They need somebody to, to teach them. And No, no, no. God knew all along. We always have needed a word from God. The word became flesh. We've always need the, needed the word of God. We've always needed a priest to atone for our sins and to pray in our behalf. We've always needed a king. So he gives his people prophet, priests, and kings. And when you put the three together as they are combined only in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the anointed one, the Messiah, prophet, priest, and king. Never read your Old Testament and not see a type of Christ and a need for the Savior. When you see a prophet, say to yourself, I need a prophet. I'm thankful that God has spoken to us in this last days by his son. When you see a priest say, I need someone to atone for my sins. Oh, Jesus, I thank you that you sat down at the right end of the father after you made your atonement. When you need a priest to pray for you, say, God, I thank you that I have Christian friends who pray for me. But what I'm really thrilled about is that the right hand of yourself is one who makes intercession for me. And when you ever see it, whenever you see a king, say to yourself, I need protection. I need government. I need someone to rule over me. I need someone who has power and authority in my life. These offices were designed to be types of Christ. And I'm saying when we read the book of Judges, we need to say, you know what? I'm not going to sit here and talk about how bad those people are. They were very bad. This book is disgusting. The book of Judges is disgusting, and God wanted it to be disgusting. It's disgusting. It's divided into three parts. There's an introduction and there's a body that goes chapters 3 through 16. But when you get to 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21, it's really, really sordid and bad, wicked and vile. Do you know why? Because people are really, really sordid and bad, wicked and vile. And when you read the book of Judges, don't just get disgusted with those people. See a mirror and say, I'm made of the same stuff. I'm made of the same stuff. God, I need a judge. I need a king. 
I need a deliverer. I need a savior. I need a rescuer. And I need one who can change me. And that's what God does. And so the new covenant provides this. The new covenant prophesied it. Here I cannot take the time to do this. But you should know that in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27, God promised that in the new covenant, in his gracious salvation, he would change the subjects of his kingship by taking out a heart of stone, which is cold and hard and dead and lifeless. And replacing it with a heart of flesh, which is alive and warm and tender. The great heart transplant. That's what conversion is. That's what some of you need. You need to have your whole life changed by a heart transplant. That's what the king of the new covenant does. That's what no king of the old covenant could do. And we need a king who can write his law on our hearts. And in Jeremiah 31, the prophecies concerning the new covenant are concerning that very thing. That he will put a new spirit within us. That he will cause all who come into the orbit of that covenant to actually know God. Remember I said the problem with these people, they didn't know God? Do you know, no king could, no king, no judge could ever say, you know, you stubborn people, you don't know God, and I'm going to help you all, I'm going to make you know God. No judge could do that. But the king of the second covenant, of the new covenant, can actually enable us to know him. He does that. That's what conversion is. The Holy Spirit, through the preached word, brings you to an understanding and a knowledge that is supernatural. You see your sins. You see your desperate condition. You see your trouble with God. You see you're headed for hell. You see that one lived and died a perfect life to be your substitute. You see your need for the Savior. You call upon him because of the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. And God opens your understanding and you genuinely know the Lord. And the promise of the new covenant is that I'll call everybody who comes into its orbit. I'll cause every one of them to know the Lord. And they will no longer have to say to the to fellow members of the new covenant, know the Lord. I don't have to say to Bill and Joe, you know, I just wish you guys would know the Lord. If you guys would get to know the Lord, maybe you could live for his glory. I don't have to say that to Bill and Joe. I don't have to say that to anybody in this congregation who knows the Savior, because they know the Lord. Everybody in the New Covenant knows the Lord. And that's why we don't place the sign of the covenant on anybody who doesn't give evidence of being in the New Covenant. But we have a king who can enable us to know him and change our hearts and write his law upon our hearts and cause us to walk in his statutes. And when he does that, that does not make us legalists. A legalist is a person who tries to keep God's law in order to obtain God's favor. But God in his gracious salvation writes his law upon our hearts and we love to keep it. We long to keep it. It's our delight to keep it. Law becomes for us love's eyes. And so we delight to do the will of our God. We don't keep the law in order to 
to pay for our sins or to achieve justification. We keep the law because now we want to become like the Savior who obeyed it for us, and we want to be holy like Him. And so we keep it in pursuit of our personal sanctification by the power of the Holy Spirit, not in order to become Christians, but because we have become Christians. That's the kind of king we have. That's my second point. And that covenant was sealed by the blood of our Savior, who said to his disciples on the night that he inaugurated the Lord's Supper, drink of this wine, this fruit of the vine, because it, it symbolizes my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And here's my last lesson. We, dear people, like Israel of old, and now I speak to those of you who are Christians and who are members of the new covenant. We, like Israel of old, have enemies yet to eradicate from our promised land, so to speak, from the land of rest into which we have entered by his grace. We have enemies yet to eradicate, don't we? We can say, you know, in one sense, I've been radically converted and I've become a new creature in Christ. And, and I, I'm, I'm living in the spiritual rest that comes to those who believe in Christ. I'm in the spiritual land of Canaan. It's not the final one. The final one's to come. I look forward to that. But I'm safe. I'm in that land. And God says, yes, you are in that land. And a major victory has been won. And you're there. And you've taken the land. But listen, now what you have to do is eradicate those enemies, those Canaanites that are troubling your soul and seek continually to bring you into oppression. Because if you don't defeat the Canaanites, the Canaanites will defeat you. This is what happened to Israel. They conquered Canaan, and because they didn't destroy and eradicate all the Canaanites, guess what happened? Canaan conquered them. The culture of Canaan. We live in Canaan, folks. Do you realize you live in Canaan and the Canaanites are all around us? Turn your television on, and all you'll hear pretty much is the Canaanites. And it's so subtle, and it appeals to uh, the sin that still remains within us. Thank, thankfully, we're not like the Israelites of old, because when um, the Canaanites came to them and said, Hey, how would you like to come to our midweek service? Well, really, what's it like? Well, what we do is we go up to the temple, and uh, men who are real men enjoy sexual intimacy with the priestess. And we believe that thereby we symbolize our great um, God, Baal, who also has such relationships with Asherah. And did you not know, Israelites, that Baal is actually a God of fertility, both human fertility and fertility in the earth. And we believe that when you do these kinds of things which are pleasurable, they're also very sacred. Because what they do is they evoke from Baal... The, the desire himself, they awaken in him the desire to bless the land with fertility. How would you like a religion like that? Well, if you're not converted, you'd probably really like it. And these people who didn't know the Lord bought into it. Of course they bought into it because it ministered to their fleshly desires. But what am I saying to us? I'm saying that we live in Canaan and some of Canaan lives in us. And we need to identify the Canaanites in our lives and say, I don't have to kill this in order to be in the land. I am one of God's people, but I need to kill these things so that I can live more for God's glory. I want to kill these things so that I can be more like my Savior. 
And so we need to do battle with these things. And we need to identify them. Isn't it a shame that the Israelites couldn't be motivated by the love they should have had for God just because of his redemptive kindness to them? Think about it. I'm almost done. Here's here's the Israelites. They're taken into bondage. First, because that's where they're going to be preserved in Egypt. But then they become the subjects of the pharaohs. And God raises up a deliverer. His name is Moses. And he displays mighty power and delivers the children of Israel out of Egypt. And he brings them up to the Red Sea where they're between the sea, which seems impossible, and the armies, the advancing armies of of Egypt. And God opens the sea and they go through and he closes it upon the Egyptians. And then because of sin, they have to wander in the wilderness, but he's faithful to them and he provides for them supernaturally again and again and again. And then at the end of Moses' life, he says, now I have another leader for you. His name is Joshua. And he's going to lead you by my grace and power into the land of Canaan. Watch this. Watch, watch the Jordan part and the Jordan River parts. And the Israelites go into the land of Canaan and they're blessed under the leadership of Joshua. And they, and they successfully conquer the peoples. Wouldn't you think that those who had been the objects of such saving mercy would want to obey this God and say, how can we not obey such a gracious God? How do you think God starts the Ten Commandments? He says to his people, I am the Lord your God who have brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, have no other gods before me. Is that not a reasonable request? And you see, God roots his command to obey him in the grace of redemption. That's the way all of our obedience should be. That's why there's been a lot of emphasis here on the gospel. The gospel motivating us to obey God's law out of love for our Redeemer. Wouldn't you think that they would want to obey him? You would. But what about us? They experience those things, but we've experienced something better. We've experienced him writing his law on our hearts. We've experienced supernatural knowledge. We know the Lord. We have become partakers of the blessings of the new covenant. Everything about our redemption is greater than the redemption of Israel. What kind of a motive do you need to obey God? And so I'm asking us, congregation, I speak to myself, when you see sins in your life that need to be repented of, when you see Canaanites that need to be defeated, out of love for your Redeemer and out of a desire to be like Him, Kill those Canaanites. Eradicate them from the soul. And enjoy the blessedness of the land. It is really flowing with milk and honey. Your degree of happiness in the Christian life, even though you are a genuine Christian, still in large degree is an exact proportion to how much you um, walk in close fellowship and in likeness to your Savior. And when we don't, we grieve the Holy Spirit, and we know we grieve the Holy Spirit, and we don't live with good consciences. I'm not saying we put our salvation in jeopardy. I'm saying 
We put our peace and our joy and our usefulness in jeopardy. So as we study this book, this is my conclusion. We're going to see mankind's desperate need because of his depravity for a powerful, gracious king who can change us on the inside. And all of that was purchased by our Savior in his perfect life and sacrificial death on the cross. He died in order to be, as Pastor Mark prayed this morning, the greater Samson. And yes, we will see that Samson conquered many of the enemies by dying. But one died a better and greater death to conquer a greater enemy who was the antitype of Samson. And we'll see that in subsequent weeks. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the book of Judges. And when we read about these cycles, we, in our better moments, realize that there's so much about the Israelites in us that saddens us. We thank you that we are members of the new covenant and that we have a a king who changes his subjects on the inside. Oh, Lord, we praise you for that. We thank you that you have secured our knowledge of you and our perseverance and our sanctification. And we pray that you will help us to see that we still live in Canaan and the Canaanites still live here. And may we fight every sin that still troubles us. Lord, give faith to any who are here today without the Lord Jesus. May they trust in him as the only one who can pay for their sins and make them righteous. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.